Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 879. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Earlier in the service, we read the account of Jesus' triumphal entry as it is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. I now want to turn your attention to Luke's account of those same events, and particularly to to Jesus' somewhat surprising response to the accolades of the people. How does Jesus respond as He rides into Jerusalem to to the hosannas of the people? The Scriptures tell us that He weeps. Let us read together the Word of God, beginning at verse 41, Luke chapter 19. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, You promise that Your Word will not return void, but that it will have its effect. And so claiming that promise, we come before You now, Father, asking that the Spirit that inspired Luke to write these words would now be at work among us, opening our minds and our hearts to receive this truth. But more than that, Father, to believe it and to apply it and to obey it and to bring forth its fruit in our lives, all to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. We call these verses that uh, we've been reading this morning, Jesus' triumphal entry. And as you know all too well, he is coming into Jerusalem. That's really the first thing I want you to see this morning, that these events take place in Jerusalem. If you scan back just a a few verses from what we read, you'll, you'll see this in verse 28. Verse 41 says, when he drew near the city, but verse 28 tells us that the city that he is drawing near is Jerusalem, because when he had seen these things, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And if you are familiar with Luke's Gospel, which if you are regular here, hopefully you're somewhat familiar with Luke's Gospel. We've been going through it for quite some time now. But if you are familiar with Luke's Gospel, you remember that that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem began all the way back in chapter 9. Back in chapter 9, Jesus made up His mind to go to Jerusalem. And He told His disciples that that was where He was headed. In fact, He said it more emphatically than that. He, he, He set His face 
to go to Jerusalem. He, he resolved to go there. He, he resolved that he would not be diverted, that he would not be turned to the right or to the left. He was going to Jerusalem. And in fact, chapters 9 through 19 of Luke's gospel tell us the, the, uh, the story of that trip as he is on his way to Jerusalem. It tells us of the, the, the enemies that he encounters and of the, the words that he gives his disciples as he heads towards the city. And so when Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem in chapter 19, we know that it is not by chance. It is not happenstance. It is is not a, a coincidence. But rather, He is here as the result of a considered, deliberate decision. This is where He has been heading for some time. He's come here intentionally. But more than that, He has come knowing what is going to happen when he gets there. Jesus is not ignorant of who is in Jerusalem. He is not ignorant of what is going to happen to him when he gets there. Jesus knows that he is going to be betrayed. He he knows that he is going to be condemned. He he knows that, that he is going to be crucified. He knows all these things. As he enters Jerusalem and as the, the events of the, the Passion Week unfold, he is not going to say to himself, well, only I would have known. And we do that, don't we? Sometimes we, we go through life and, and we make certain decisions and they don't turn out the way that we expect. And we, we say to ourselves, if only I would have known. If only I would have known that things were going to go this way, I would have done this or I would have done that differently. I had an experience like that just last night. I, I had gone down to Chattanooga yesterday to, to have dinner with my parents. Sarah's out of town. I needed someone to cook. And so I went to my mom's house. That's what I do. And so we went down there for, for dinner and I watched some of the masters with my dad and about seven and a clock or 7.30, we said, you know, we probably need to get home so we can get our showers and get ready for, for church. And so we get on the interstate and we start heading home, only to find out that the interstate's closed. And it's going to take us like two hours to get home. At least that's what Siri said. And so my kids were very depressed as they were in the car and hearing, how long is it going to take? And we thought, if only we would have known, we would have gone another route. If only we would have known that these things were so, we would have done something differently. We do that. We do it a lot. And we do it with things more important than traffic. We often say to ourselves, if only I would have known, I would have, I would have done it differently. Jesus isn't going to say that. Jesus isn't going to be surprised when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows what is going to happen. Turn back with me to chapter 9, verse 21. If you'll just scan back a few chapters in Luke's gospel, you'll see back in chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus tells his disciples As early as this verse, what is going to happen in Jerusalem? If you'll notice, you know, at least in the ESV, there's these headings that that tell you what the paragraphs are about. And verse 21 has a heading that says, Jesus foretells his death. But if you scan back to the previous paragraph, it says, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And so Jesus has, has been working on his disciples since really chapter 1. Even, even from the very beginning of his life, Jesus has been announcing himself. His, His birth was announced by angels. You know, and then he's in the temple at, at age 12. And then uh, he is uh, in, on his public ministry and he's showing the people who he is. He's announcing himself as the one who brings the kingdom. And he's, and he's demonstrating what the kingdom is like through his, his miracles. He's revealing himself. And finally, when we get to chapter 9, the disciples are starting to get it. And Jesus rec- or Peter recognizes on behalf of the 12, yes, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. They, he are beginning to recognize who Jesus is. 
And as soon as the disciples get it, as soon as they announce, yes, you are the Christ, we, we know who you are, Jesus says, now don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And you have to think that they thought that was weird. You know, what, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, you, you've been trying to show us who you are. We're finally starting to get it. We, we need to get this word out. We need, to, we need to announce it. He says, no, no, don't tell anybody. Now, why would he say such a thing? He would say such a thing because the disciples, while they now know who he is, they don't know what kind of Messiah he is going to be. They still need to learn what it means for him to be the Christ. They still need to learn what he's going to do as the Christ. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody, but let me teach you. And he immediately begins to tell them that as the Christ, I'm going to die. Look at it in verse 21. He says, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, We know from some of the other Gospels that when Peter heard this, he said, far be it from you, Jesus, this will never happen. (laughs) You know, we're not going to let this happen to you. Peter just couldn't hear it. And and, and when they realized that Jesus was not going to be deterred from this message, they started trying to figure out, what does he mean by dead, you think? What do you you mean? What do you think he means when he says he's going to die? I wonder what that means. And they, they just can't hear it. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows, and he doesn't just tell them once, he he tells them again in verses 43 and and 44. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Have you ever used a phrase like that? Maybe not that exact phrase, but you used a phrase like that with your kids. You know, I've said it, now listen carefully. (laughs) You know, you're not getting it. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's a phrase that echoes the Old Testament. When God lets someone be delivered into the hands of men, that is judgment language. Good things don't follow. When Israel is delivered into the hands of their enemies, it is the judgment of God. And that is what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man is about to come under the judgment of God. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is going to die. And he says it again for a third time in chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, this time making it clear that these things are going to happen in Jerusalem. He says, he says See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So again and again and again, we we see in the Gospels that Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He is not ignorant. He is not naive. He is going there on purpose, knowing what he is going to face when he gets there. But why? Why would Jesus voluntarily go to Jerusalem knowing that these things lay ahead of him? Well, in the story, we we get our answer. Did you notice? Look back. uh, Turn back with me to, to chapter 19. And look with me at verse 27. 
After Jesus is uh, on his way into Jerusalem, notice the instructions that he gives to his disciples. He says, When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, and he gave them very specific instructions. He said, Go into the village that is in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So Jesus gives his disciples these very specific instructions. This isn't something that we see all the time in the Gospels. Jesus isn't always micromanaging their lives. But in this case, he says, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to go into the village. You need to find this colt and you need to bring it to me. And we're told that the the disciples do exactly what Jesus says. Verse 32, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And so they go, they, they do exactly what they are told. And the, the events that follow are what we call the triumphal entry. We, we read it beginning in verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down uh, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here is Jesus' triumphal entry unfolding exactly as Jesus said that it should. But why would Jesus give so uh, such specific instructions? What is, what is going on here? Well, it's, it's significant that this is not a spontaneous event. This is not one of those things that just happened. This isn't you know, one of these mob riots that just sort of spring up out of, out of nowhere. This is a planned event. This is, this is orchestrated. And it's orchestrated to fulfill the words of an Old Testament prophecy. The prophecy that we actually used as our call to worship this morning. It is is orchestrated to fulfill the words of Zechariah chapter 9. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is announcing himself as the one who was promised by the prophet Zechariah. Turn there with me. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 9. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, this is page 796. So what's going on in this prophecy? Well, look, look what the, the prophet says. Zechariah chapter 9. The prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so here we have it. Zechariah, who uh, on some levels is a, is a prophet of, of doom and gloom, a prophet who announces quite a bit of judgment. Here, at this point in his prophecy, he is, he is calling the people to rejoice because God's judgment of them is not the last word. He is calling on them to rejoice, to sing greatly because, because their king is coming. Their king is coming to them. And notice what we're told about this king. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the people are to rejoice because their king is coming to them and he is coming to them righteous. He is coming to them with salvation. That word righteousness is a word that echoes throughout the Old Testament. It is a word that that speaks of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. 
Why is God righteous to save us? He is not righteous to save us because we are righteous and deserving of salvation. That is not why we appeal to God's righteousness. If we were appealing to God's righteousness upon the foundation of our own righteousness, we would all be in great trouble. God's righteousness is not for us because we are worthy. God's righteousness is for us because He has promised. God bound Himself to us. God chose us to be His people and said, if you will believe in Me and if you will rest in My goodness, then I will be to you a God and you will be to Me a people. And it is, it is God's own promise that binds him to us. And it is God's own promise that moves him to, to bring us salvation. And here we see that God says, finally, you have been unfaithful. That's the, that's the message of Zechariah. You have been unfaithful. You have brought down my condemnation. But that condemnation will not be the last word. Because I will, despite all of your sin, I will do all that I have promised to do. I will send you a king. I will send you a king who will bring you salvation. And this will be the sign for you that he is coming. He will come humble and mounted on a donkey. That is the word of the prophet. You see, when the king comes, he doesn't come upon a war horse. He doesn't come to to overpower and subdue. He does not come to defeat and subject, but rather he comes humbly to bless. He comes humbly to pour out God's peace upon His people. Notice this is exactly what Zechariah says in verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot. Think about that. The chariot, an instrument of war. We're we're going through the book of Exodus on Wednesday night and the chariot was the symbol of of Egypt's power. Pharaoh came after the people with, with 600 chariots. And God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. I will cut off the the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and they shall speak peace to the nations. Now there are times in the Old Testament where where words like these are a judgment. Where where God says, I will take away the bow and I will will take away the chariot and I will take away the war horse. And and the point is that that I'm going to take away these things in order to leave you defenseless. To to leave you without hope. To leave you at the, the mercy of your enemies. But as God so often does, He takes that which is a judgment and He turns it into a blessing. And here, He says, I'm going to take away the war horse not to judge you, but to bless you. You see, these things are going to go away, not not to leave you defenseless because you will no longer need defense. Because I will be your salvation. Because no one will dare stand against you because I will be for you. Reminds me of Isaiah's words, those familiar words where we're told that the spears will be beaten into pruning hooks and the swords will be turned into plowshares. It's not a judgment. That is a, that is a declaration of peace. These weapons of war will no longer be needed. This is what Zechariah was announcing. This is the peace that, that he was saying was going to be brought to God's people. And Jesus comes. Deliberately fulfilling those words to say, I am the one. I am the son of David. I am the one who brings peace to my people. I am the one who will establish God's shalom. This is what the disciples understood. This is, this is why they, they proclaim Hosanna in the highest. This is why they, they sing His praises. 
They they lay a a virtual red carpet before him to to welcome him into the city, to to encourage him to, to do that which he came to do. But of course we know from the rest of the story that while they recognized who he was claiming to be, they didn't understand exactly what he came to do. The, the events of the coming week will leave his disciples dazed and confused. They, they will be bewildered. They, they will not understand how Jesus is going to bring peace. They, they still don't understand that he must be betrayed and, and condemned. They probably thought Jesus said those things in a moment of weakness, but now he's, he's got his zeal back. They didn't yet understand what he was going to do, but they understood who he was. And they looked to him as the promised Messiah. They looked to him as the one who would bring peace to his people. But notice, the people of Jerusalem don't get it. Jesus' disciples, they get it. They, they see what's going on. They, they sing his praises, but the people of Jerusalem don't get it. It's what we read. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 19. Look again at verse 41. As Jesus draws near to the city, he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. And notice what he says. Would that you, that is Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that you have known, would you have known the things that would bring you peace. But they don't get it. It's hidden from their eyes. And because they don't get it, notice what Jesus says will happen. Because they do not get it, instead of knowing the blessing of God, they will instead endure His condemnation. Instead of knowing peace, they will reap destruction. Instead of knowing His blessing, they will know His wrath and fury. Jesus tells us not one stone will be left upon another because they rejected the one who could bring them peace. And so as we read this story, at the beginning of of Holy Week, at the beginning of, of Jesus' final passion, as we read this story, we are forced to ask ourselves this question. Do we, this morning, know what will bring us peace? Do we know the things that make for peace? I think all of us want peace. We want not just the absence of hostility, but we want that, that flourishing, that, that things the way they're supposed to be. We, we want that. We, we want it, but do we know how to get it? I think many today, even in the church, believe that peace will come through a change in circumstances. You see, when they look at their life, when they, they look at the turmoil, when they look at the anxiety, when they look at the, the difficulties that they face, they, they believe that their problems are, are circumstantial, and therefore they believe that the solution is circumstantial. If only their circumstances can change, then finally they will know peace. For some, this comes in the, in the form of needing more money. They, they, just, they struggle every month to, to make ends meet. They, they struggle every month to, to pay their bills and, or they struggle to, to live at the, the standard that they would like to live and so that they just know if, if I just had a little more, if I just made a little more, if I just got that promotion or if I just you know, made a little more money, then, then I would know peace. 
Further, it's not how much money, but it's just the way that they make their money. Maybe they hate their job. They're, they're stuck in a job that they don't like. Every day they have to, to go and do something that they would rather not be doing. I think if I could just get a job that, that better fit my design, that better fit my gifts, that, that, that better fit my passions, then, then I would know peace. If only I could get a better job. Or maybe it's not about work at all. Maybe it's just about relationships. Maybe it's about your friendships. And you just think, if, if, I just, if I just had better friends, if I just had more friends, if I just had the relationships that I need, then, then even despite the, the lack of money or the lack of job, then I would have peace. If I just had the right relationships. Or maybe it's not friends. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's family. Maybe Maybe your family is, is stressed or, or broken. You think, if I could just get my family back together. Maybe your marriage is, is, is not what you want it to be. Maybe you, you somehow think you've married the wrong person. You think, if I could just change my spouse, then, then I would have peace. Maybe it's something as basic as health. You've been struggling with a chronic condition for a long time and, and you don't know how much longer you can take it or, or the health of your loved ones is, is failing. You say, if, if we could just have some health, then I could have peace. These are the things that we look to. We think that our problem is, is circumstantial and therefore we think that the solution is circumstantial. If only this, then, then I would have the peace that I want. I can tell you this morning, even if you were to get everything you wanted, even if you could write the script of your life, it wouldn't be what you wanted. Such a change to our circumstances will not bring us the lasting peace that our hearts desire. And we know this. We, we know it by experience, do we not? We know that when we finally get that thing that we had set our heart upon, the peace just doesn't last. We, we experienced this as kids on, on Christmas, did we not? And, you know, we, we set our heart on that particular gift. And if that, we got that gift on Christmas morning, we, we were so excited. We knew this was going to be the best year ever. And it was in the closet before New Year's. We know this from, from experience. But it's not just kids on Christmas who do this. We, we do it all the time. We, we think to ourselves, if only I could have this. And then we get it. And it doesn't last. The circumstantial changes that we think will bring us peace don't. Certainly Solomon understood this. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says that he denied himself no pleasure. And that wasn't just the hedonistic pleasure. Sure, he said, you know, I, I ate the best food. I wore the nicest clothes. But, but he, he enjoyed the pleasures of work as well. He undertook great things. He said, I built great gardens. I grew, built great palaces. I, I did great undertakings. I denied myself no pleasure. I, I learned great things. Now, to some of you, that still seems very strange. But some of you know what he's talking about. You know, he dedicated himself to, to education, to reading books. He said, and, and I just filled my mind with these things. And he, he sought out every type of pleasure known to man. He denied himself nothing. And his conclusion was vanity. Vanity, chasing after the wind. All these things failed to satisfy. Jesus said something similar when he said, A man can gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. There's a psalm about this, actually. A man named Asaph writes for a Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, we, we are told that, that this man, while he knows that God is good, when he looked at the prosperity of the wicked, he said, my foot had almost slipped. 
He said, I almost lost my footing because I looked around at all the things that the wicked had. I I looked at their ease. I looked at their lifestyle and I became envious. And I began to say, why don't I have that? I'm a faithful follower of God. I, I do what he gives me to do. Why hasn't he blessed me with that? Why hasn't he given me the things that they so readily enjoy? And he says that when I tried to understand this, I just couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't make sense of why my life was so hard and their life was so easy when I was the one faithful to God and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. He said, I tried to understand it, but it was a wearisome task. I I couldn't make sense of it until. And that word is the turning point in the psalm. He says, I couldn't make sense of it until I went into the sanctuary. And there I discerned the truth. Because there I discerned their end. When Asaph entered into the sanctuary, he saw something that sort of set his bearings straight. So what is it that he saw? What what did Asaph see in the sanctuary? Almost certainly what Asaph saw were the sacrifices. He saw the animals being slaughtered upon the altar. It's a, it's a gory sight if you think about it. If you think about all the blood that's been shed and, and, and where it's being splattered and where it's being poured out, it is, a, it is a gory thing. And in that sight, that blood-filled sight, Asoth was reminded. He saw the end of the wicked. You see, in the sacrifices, he saw that the wages of sin is death. Those sacrifices showed him that while the, pros- while the wicked may prosper for a while, while they may enjoy good circumstances for a time, in the end, they will be blown away like chaff. In the end, they will be burned up like garbage. They cannot stand in the Lord's judgment. Their end is destruction. Those who are far from the Lord may enjoy life for a time, but their end is destruction. He saw that in the sacrifices, but he also saw something else. Because who did he see perishing in the sanctuary? Not the wicked. That's not who he saw being slaughtered in the sanctuary. Who he saw being killed was an innocent substitute. Who he saw being killed was the the sacrificial lamb. It was the substitute's blood who was being poured out. And so in the temple, he saw the end of the wicked, but he also saw the hope of the righteous. Again, not those who are righteous in themselves, but those who are righteous through faith in God. He saw that for them, another has died in their place. The righteous live not because they are righteous by their own record, not because they have established their righteousness with God through the law, but rather they live because one who was innocent died in their place. One who was innocent took the curse for them because the Lamb of God turned away the wrath of God that the people of God might know the blessing of God. This is what was going on in the sanctuary. But of course, the author of Hebrews tells us that the The blood of lambs can't really do all this. The blood of goats can't really cover our sin. It was a picture of what was necessary, but it was not the thing itself. It pointed forward. And it pointed forward 
to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die? Why did he go there knowing that he was going to be betrayed and and crucified? He went there, as he told us in Mark chapter 10, to lay down his life as the ransom for many. He went there to die for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His death was not unexpected. It was not unfortunate. It was not an accident of history. His death was on purpose. It was according to the foreknowledge and the definite plan of His Father in heaven. He came to die for us. Because He knew that it was only through His death that we could have peace. Yes, He is the Savior who brings peace, but He brings peace not by defeating the Romans, not by overthrowing the the powers that be, not by changing our circumstances here and now. But He comes by giving His life to reconcile us to His Father. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that that God put forth Christ as the propitiation, as the sacrifice for sins that turns away the wrath of God, so that He can say in in Romans chapter 5, that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We have been reconciled to Him. There is no longer a record of debt that stands against us. It has been nailed to the cross, paid in full by His blood. As Peter says, we have been ransomed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ our Savior, the Lamb without blemish or spot. And so through Jesus Christ, we now have an objective peace, a peace with God. He is now for us, and He promises to work all things together for our good. And because we have that objective peace, we can now know the subjective peace that we crave regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of where you find yourself this morning, you can know His peace that surpasses all understanding. Not because you know the trial is going to end. Not because you know the storm will pass. It may not. I can't promise you this morning that that thing that you are suffering will will suddenly vanish. I can't promise you that you will not have to pass through trials. In fact, I can promise you that you will. You will pass through the shadow of death. You will pass through floodwaters. You will pass through fiery trials. But in the midst of all that, you can know the peace of God. You can rejoice in the Lord in the present because you know you have a peace with God that is unassailable and that will last for all eternity. Jesus Christ came as your King to reconcile you to the Father that you might have peace now because you will have peace for all eternity. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem as our king, not to defeat the Romans, but to be killed by them so that we, who deserved to die, might instead for all eternity know his blessing. And because such peace is ours through the coming of our King, it is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Believe it with me. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. Father God, we do rejoice in this gospel. You sent your Son. You sent Him to die. That we who deserve to die might not perish 
but might have eternal life. Father God, I pray that this gospel would put down roots in our heart and would bring forth fruit in our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.